This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. The clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You said my world on even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program on The Fan, Sports Radio 66, Sports Radio 1019. Those of you joining us on Radio.com, welcome aboard. I'm Bob Solter, and this time of the year, we get into discussions surrounding the work of Why Hunger and Hungerthon. Allison Cohen has joined us before on this program. She's Senior Director of Programs for Why Hunger, and um, it's nice to have you join us again. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to be here. Hope you've been well in this uh, challenging year of 2020 also. Yep, challenging year, but I'm, I'm doing well. My family's well, so that's great. That's good. Okay. And we have a guest who is joining us who is um, a Why Hunger board member, as I understand, Chef Pearl Thompson. Uh, Pearl, it's nice to have you join us. Thank you, Bob. Great to be here. Great to be alive right now. Well, that's the, that's the other thing. Uh, natural question in this day and age. How has 2020 treated you? Ooh, it's been a roller coaster, just like it's been for everybody else. I mean, you know, just a very challenging year. Probably for a lot of us, it's the most challenging year we've ever seen. But we'll get through it. There you go. That's the approach. Okay. I guess in beginning in this discussion, because um, the big day that a lot of attention is turned to is this coming Tuesday with the uh, Hungerthon and the radio broadcasts uh, surrounding it. A little bit of background, as we always do, on um, why hunger. Allison, take us through that. Yeah. So thank you, Bob. It's, um, it's really great to be here. This is our 35th year of Hungerthon. And I don't know if you've been with us since the beginning, but I think you might have, at least you've been with us for a very, very long time. Um, and uh, so this is a really amazing opportunity for Why Hunger every year to, um, to become sort of an annual Thanksgiving radio tradition where we are able to raise critical funds and awareness in order to support communities across America and build awareness about hunger and its root causes. Um, why hunger is built on the belief that nutritious food is a human right. And the funds that we're able to raise through Hungerthon um, are invested in community-based solution, community-based solutions to end hunger, and in particular at its root causes in the US. So when we talk about <laughs> hunger in uh, 2020 and you know, talk about the pandemic, which everybody gets into discussion about inevitably, inevitably these days. What are we really seeing taking place? 
So we have seen, um, particularly, I know you're, this audience is mostly in the tri-state area, I believe, is that correct? Um, or maybe now everything is, is, uh, is national. Um, but I'll just say that here in New York City, um, there's been a doubling of the food insecurity rate um, since March. And um, that is an incredible um, thing to wrap one's head around that, um, you know, back in, in January, maybe there were 1.2 million New Yorkers in um, facing food insecurity. And now that is just now breaking 2 million. So that is a huge, tremendous um, uh, increase. Uh, the likes that we, uh, likes of which we've never seen before. Um, nationally, there were approximately 37 million people um, that were officially, uh, you know, categorized according to the um, Economic and Research Service of the USDA as, as food insecure. And now that number is pushing 54 million. Again, in the span wow. of about seven or eight months. Um, so it's important for a couple of reasons. And two things I want to point out. One is that um, we have to, the, the, the pandemic is a crisis, certainly, but it's really more of a crisis within a larger long-term chronic crisis of food insecurity and hunger in this country. And um, so I think that's an important thing for, for folks to, um, to realize. And, and secondly, the, the, the idea that so many people can so quickly fall into a situation of needing to access emergency food is an indicator of a real lack of resilience in our food system, um, which I know is something that, that Chef Pearl knows, um, knows quite a bit about and has done a lot of um, uh, teaching and training um, about in, in, her, in her role as a Culinary Institute um, founder and trainer as well. Let me follow up on something before we get to that point with, with you, Pearl. Is this term food insecure? Okay, we've talked about this before on mm -hmm. uh, these discussions. When you say food insecure, you know, some people may zone out just yeah. hearing that, that term. Okay, what exactly is meant by that in, in terms of a real way to crystallize this for people who are listening to this discussion? Yeah, so um, there are a lot of, there are different sort of very specific definitions or or. or there's, a, there's some, some uh, research-oriented ways to understand um, what food insecurity means. But I think for most of us, um, we can boil it down to the need to um, skip meals, the need to um, uh, eat less healthy food, less expensive food, because our budgets just cannot stretch to provide enough food enough nutritious calories for our, our body. So um, yes, in the US, we are um, not, when we talk about 37 million people, that's uh, about one in seven. Um, when you talk about 54 million, I think we're down to one in six, which is one in four children. And so clearly when you're walking around the street, you don't identify 25% of, of, of you know, 25 every 100 people you see, you don't necessarily think of them as looking or appearing hungry. But in this country, that's a situation we're facing. And most of the, in Northern Europe and, and throughout North America as well, that hunger is not something that is necessarily recognizable just by 
brushing up against someone on the street. Pearl, your reaction to where we are with hunger in this country? I really think that um, Allison completely encapsulated the feelings of where we are in regard to hunger, food and uh, insecurity, food apartheid. I mean, because really it's even greater than just having access to nutritional food. But when you look at the myriad of people who live in this country, we realize that the vast majority come from other shores. And a good portion of that is that we may be promoting food that's not necessarily a part of their diet. We use the standard American diet to say that this is what everybody should eat. But if I'm coming from a country where beans and corn or what I ingest, this is what has been historically our food, but we can't find it because there is this um, whole philosophy that says that, you know, you have to subscribe to the American diet and not to the diet that you were necessarily reared on. Um, so then you just have to go hungry. So we have that. I think that there are so many facets in terms of food insecurity slash food apartheid that just don't necessarily um, come, you know, that are not just thought of in the definition of those terms. There's so many implications there that have to be addressed. Um, and I mean, I was just a, a sidebar note. I was um, thinking about the grounds of sculpture in New Jersey and I was thinking about there was a, there's an exhibit where there are all these statues that are representative of when we were in the depression, those food lines. And as I'm driving around now, I'm seeing those food lines I've always seen them. I mean, I've worked in um, uh, food insecurity for the last God knows how many years. But, you know, and I never associated that time and space with where we are now. We are definitely in the crux of it. And as Allison so pointedly said, we're, it, it has doubled. So we've seen this before. Um, and we have not even seen the full fallout from it um, because after the pandemic, I think will be horrendous in terms of food, uh, people being able to live, you know, because food is just, this whole insecurity piece is just a, a, a small percentage of the impact that um, poverty has on people's lives. It's a lot. It is a lot. And one of the things that Allison, you and I have talked about before and it was part of what you mentioned is this whole idea of children being in this situation of not having enough to eat. And I've said this to you before, and Pearl, share your thoughts on this if you want to. I just find that completely unacceptable. And I've never been able to understand why it is that that's not just something viewed as being unacceptable in this country in this day and age. Yeah, and I again, I think that we have, um, it's become a little bit invisible, right? I mean, we're not, um, you, I remember when my kids were younger, and I'd go into the public school, into the cafeteria to help out every now and then, and 
And I would look around and I would think, wow, at the time, this is pre-pandemic, I was like, wow, one out of every six of the children that I'm seeing in this cafeteria would not be eating lunch if they weren't here in the public school, right? And so that's one thing, but then you layer in like, well, what is it that they're being served? And then what are they gonna have tonight when they get home for dinner, right? So, and the fact that some of them, because of the, that we don't, New York is different. We have universal school lunch, but the majority of the country doesn't have universal school lunch. And so there's a tremendous stigma attached to it as well. So the, the idea that in our country, one of the wealthiest countries in the world, but one of the most unequal, we do not have, um, kids don't go into school and automatically get, get a hot lunch. I mean, you know, that's, that's one thing. And then secondly, that there isn't any kind of universal basic income or any kind of real social safety net. And one thing that we've learned from this pandemic, I think is that so many of us are just one crisis, one emergency, one, you know, one lost job uh, away from being in a situation of needing to go to a food bank. And that is not a dignified way of, um, of getting access to, to good, healthy food. So if this is the case in 2020, and we've seen a lot of talk, some movement in this area of social justice, economic justice, I guess the question becomes, what's it going to take for there to be a real initiative, a real turnaround? in this situation, especially as we move into, you know, the heart of the winter, we're hearing that the next couple of months are going to be potentially very, very tough in terms of the um, impact of the pandemic. There are people who are already suffering. Um, What's it going to take to really turn this around? Pearl, do you want to... I can give, so from why hunger's point of view, right? We are invested in getting people nutritious food now. So I don't want to underscore that. It is, it is critical um, in times of real emergency, in times of crisis like now, that we have a charitable food system. We, we, we need to ensure that folks get food when they need it, right? And we want to work towards a world where that only has to happen in true emergencies, right? That this idea that we will, that, that it's inevitable, that we will always have the poor among us is just, um, it's, it's a little bit enraging for me and it's just not true. We do not have to live in a world where there is poverty and hunger. So what's it gonna take? Why Hunger believes that it is going to take resourcing, growing a collective power of grassroots communities and, and social movements that are the drivers of the, of, of the, the, the solutions that will transform and last. Um, Pearl talked about, she mentioned the term food apartheid earlier, which mm-hmm. I think is just such an interesting um, term that I first heard it from uh, one of our former board members and um, founder of uh, the Black Urban Growers Organization, Corn Washington, um, who's a, a farmer 
um, in, in the Bronx and has been for many, many years, she talked about food apartheid. And, and it, this was in response to um, the, the growing uh, term or the growing use of the term food desert, right? And food desert implies that, oh, it's just there naturally, right? Because deserts are natural. But, and this is per, where Pearl, I think, was, was going with her comment that um, food apartheid indicates that there is, that it's, that it's something that is constructed. We're going to take a pause in our discussion with Allison Cohen, who is Senior Director of Programs for Why Hunger, and Pearl Thompson, who's a Why Hunger board member. We've got a lot more to get to. Our program goes until 7.30 this morning. Rick Wolf is along with the Sports Edge then. You're on the fan. We're talking about the work of Why Hunger and Hunger Thought with Allison Cohen, who is Senior Director of Programs for Why Hunger, and Chef Pearl Thompson, who's a Why Hunger board member. They've joined us on our program. I'm Bob Salter. Our program runs until 7.30 this morning. Rick Wolf will be along with the Sports Edge at that time. And we're in a discussion talking about this work of Why Hunger and Hunger Thought. And before we paused, um, Pearl Allison was talking about um, this term that you used um, of food apartheid. I want to give you the opportunity to explain exactly what you mean. The issue is value. It's value of every human being that walks the face of this earth. Once we start commodifying food, once we did that, um, we created situations of hunger where people could not get their basic needs met. Mm -hmm. Food, hunger, and shelter are what we need in order to survive as humans. There are major, major entities that spend morning, noon, and night just trying to get the bare necessities of those three components in their lives just so that they can continue to breathe and be on this side of the dirt and feed their children. You know, um, when we talk about apartheid, it is founded on the principles of that, um, that value system that has been implemented that says that you don't, you know, you need to get the scraps from my table as opposed to um, the, 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 the more, the things that are more relative to a good life. So, you know, when you, you know, so, I mean, why hunger in its approach to, yes, I mean, we are in a crisis and we've been in a crisis where food is concerned as somebody who uh, taught culinary to marginalized communities. I mean, we saw this happen um, time and time again, people signed up for culinary school, A, because they needed to ensure that they could get a meal every day. They knew if they came in and they cooked that they could, they could walk home, walk out with some food. But it was just a small piece of a very larger problem. You know, it was that struggle, that day-to-day struggle. I mean, I live in New Jersey. You you where can you live in New Jersey with a child on 11, 12, 13, 14, $15 an hour. You just can't. The system is, but the system is designed to keep you in that, in that constant, um, that constant mode of struggle. There is no ease to it. And if we can just 
address this piece um, and do it, you know, both on a micro level and on a macro level, being able to make changes um, to so that people can be seen as valued just by the sake of their humanity, as opposed to <laughs> as opposed to some form of commodity that we can broker. That's where the change has to happen. I'm sorry. That's it. So basically, understanding food as a um, uh, access to nutritious food is a basic human right. It is a right. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, it's, you know, it's something that you, I mean, you know, industrialization just really killed the ability to be able to grow your own food mm. and to have the access. So I'm, I'm listening to your words and thinking everything you're saying and everything Allison's saying makes sense. And it kind of gets back to this whole question that comes up a lot of the time for me personally in 2020. And that is, how did we get to this point? Not so much how do we get out of it, but it's like, how did we, how on earth did we get to the point where everything just seems so backwards, basically, <laughs> to, to the way that things should be? And also, it seems like the priorities are backwards, too. I, I guess I would ask the question of have, has it, ha have we ever had our priorities in order? <laughs> you know, since the, I mean, seriously, since the founding of this country, it's it's difficult to argue that um, it's difficult to argue that we have we are a country that believes in absolute freedom when we're our agricultural system. The wealth that we have was in the beginning you know, uh, built on the backs of, of brown and black people. And, um, and I think that we still have a really, there's still an incredibly, not, this is no, no surprise clearly, but, but it needs to be said over and over again that race is a critical, critical issue in all of the social inequities that, that we face in this country. And that um, um, while there is, um, while there is movement and progress, we still have a, a long way to go. And I think the, the fact that food insecurity is, as, um, is as, as stark and as dire as it is, and the fact that the majority of folks that are experiencing food insecurity are people of color, um, I think that that's a pretty strong indicator of the work that's still ahead of us in this country. Yeah, I would I would definitely agree that race and class as well play a huge uh, play a huge part in um, who has access and who doesn't. That value again that I keep going back to the value that we place on lives and and you know that this last four years that we've had has only created a um, a larger um, a larger divide in terms of that value you know this this really is a top-down problem yes grassroots folks are organizing but we've got to change how we approach this on so many in within so many of the institutions that exist so what's the first step in making that change um, I, I well 
the first step, I think we probably um, need to be taking a lot of different steps all mm-hmm. at the same time. And in one way, and, and, and I think that um, just to kind of bring it back to, to, to why hunger and hunger in general is country that, that, um, that there is, um, that it's important to make sure that folks are getting what they need now, right? So um, we do that in, Why Hunger does that in terms of um, connecting people with our National Hunger Hotline directly to um, sources of food, those that, that need it right now. And we have seen um, a 600% increase since the beginning of this pandemic in the number of calls that we're getting from people, which is also a really stark indication of how quickly um, the, the rates of in food insecurity have grown, a 600% increase. We have 600 um, percent increase. Yes, we have had close to 800,000 um, callers, connections that we've made both through the phone and through um, our database online. 800,000 people that have called or accessed information um, for emergency food in this year, in 2020. And that's, that's a 600 percent increase for us. And, and you know, as you only- say that, I'm also thinking, excuse me for interrupting you, natural thought is I also think of the people who might think of it, but yet won't take that step to call or to go online. Okay. For, for, for whatever reason. Okay. Right. Right. Uh, And those numbers you could never come up with. Right. Uh, I mean, that's 600% increase. It's like, yeah. wow, that's mind-blowing. Yeah, it, it, it is mind-blowing. It is. And I want to keep going back to this, this um, uh, reminding folks that, that this is just a crisis within a larger crisis. It, and there is the opportunity, we have some opportunity, at least in the work that, that you know, Pearl and I are doing, we have some opportunity to um, uh, amplify this, this reality for folks, because as Pearl said, you know, where it's not just the a statue of folks, you know, in line, um, uh, during the depression that it's those statues have come to life. We're seeing it now, right? We, we, I drive by the, or walk by the Barclays center in Brooklyn and, um, folks are, are wrapped around the block several times, um, waiting in line to get food, many of them for the very first time, very first time in their lives. So yes, we are in a crisis, and um, this has been a—it's um, uh, been a chronic but maybe invisible crisis for quite for quite some time now. Um, we've had food banking in this country for more than fifty years, and um, and I think what we're learning. And what we know on some level is that we cannot food bank our way out of hunger, right? So maybe you go back to the steps. One of the steps is is becoming um, aware of the extent of the problem and that the problem is not just a problem of today, but it's a problem of many, many decades. And, um, and understanding then, well, if it, that, that hunger is just a symptom that hunger is not the problem. It is a symptom of a deeper problem. And so maybe that's then the, the second step is, is interrogating, well, then what's it a problem of, right? right. Yeah, it's, um, 
it's approaching it from a holistic perspective. We have to do that. I mean, you know, we can't segment ourselves out of this crisis. You know, um, hung, it's so important that people understand that it is just one sm- aspect of people having a decent life. What are the systemic issues that have created this? And I think that um, we really, really like to dissect it into small pieces um, as opposed to taking that whole um, whole body approach. You know, I'm a holistic practitioner. I need to know all of the things that have brought you where you are. It's not that you just, you know, you are where you are. There were other factors that created it. And until we can do that, um, we won't address this problem. And Bob, just to give you a little set, because I feel like um, uh, it, when you and I have these conversations, Bob, it tends to stay on this kind of conceptual level. I mean, we're talking about real issues, but I wanted to be able to give you and, and, and folks that are listening a sense of what some of those, um, some of the impact that why hunger and organizations like mm. ours have had, and some of the ways in which we're 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 really uh, working to end hunger. And um, one I mentioned is connecting people, um, individuals, and children to nutritious food and other resources that can help break the cycle of poverty and hunger. And that's really one one little piece of what we do. And we also are investing in training in uh, training farmers. We've um, in the last year um, had the opportunity to invest in the training of more than a hundred thousand farmers around the world in growing uh, food um, in in an agroecological way, meaning in a, a sustainable sustainable way, a way that really um, helps to grow. Um, good healthy food without pesticides and in concert with the local ecology. Um, We've also invested um, resources, capacity building, other kinds of training in grassroots organizations, social movements, grassroots solutions that are working to end hunger in their own communities and um, uh, both in the US and in 24 countries around the world. I could go on. We also work uh, with crisis intervention, right? So we, when there is a, um, a climate-related crisis or some other kind of emergency, we're able to respond rapidly at the grassroots level. We believe that it's the grassroots organizations that are in their communities that are the first and should be the first responders in these kinds of emergencies. They know where the, the, they know where the food, where the resources, where the money needs to go, and they can get it there quickly. So there's a variety of different ways, and Why Hunger is definitely not a one-size-fits-all kind of organization, um, because we understand that, that to end hunger, we have to, we have to really um, dig down to the roots and approach it, as Pearl said, in a holistic way. We've got a lot more to get to with Chef Pearl Thompson, a Why Hunger board member, and with Allison Cohen, who's Senior Director of Programs for Why Hunger, talking with us on our program here on The Fan. We're talking with Allison Cohen, who's Senior Director of Programs for Why Hunger. We're also joined by a Why Hunger board member, Chef Pearl Thompson. I'm Bob Salter. Now, one of the thoughts is 
for someone who's completely new to this idea of hunger thought. Uh, hunger thought has a, a rich history in terms of um, radio in New York City. Actually, has a rich history also with this radio station and with this company uh, that has developed too. But what does Hungerthon mean to why hunger? First of all, Allison. So Hungerthon is a critical, critical time every year. This is our 35th year of being on the air. We like to say taking over the airwaves. And with, um, with the help of, of Intercom and SiriusXM and iHeart, um, but it all started with, um, with CBS. It all started with, with Intercom all these years ago, um, before it was Intercom, right? So um, it has become an annual Thanksgiving radio tradition. And for us, it's a critical opportunity to raise funds for Why Hunger? Um, last year, I think we raised about a million dollars, and this year we're hoping to, to, to meet that goal and, and, and go beyond it. And, um, and it's, it's, uh, it comes from small donations, you know, it comes from um, the listener uh, picking up the phone, 1-800-5-HUNGRY on Tuesday and calling in and making a pledge. It comes from the listener who goes to hungerthon.org and makes a donation. Um, there's also, we have a whole series of a whole um, uh, different offerings of, you know, t-shirts. We're working with Yoko Ono Lennon, with Billy Joel, who, who has given us the, the opportunity to create some really unique gifts that folks can buy and the money goes to Why Hunger. Um, so it is, it is fundamentally a, a once a year opportunity for Why Hunger to raise critical awareness about the root causes of hunger and to raise funds to resource grassroots organizations and solutions at the community level to end hunger in this country. And you can really trust that your donations are absolutely going to be used for exactly what we say they are going to be used for, which is for uh, building community to alleviating hunger, um, to supporting small um, small farms, everything, all the work that we do somewhere, I think around 84% of every dollar that comes in goes into the programming of um, into the programs of Why Hunger. So, I mean, we have a great rating, you know, um, <laughs> you know, we have great accountability. We have great fiscal management. We are, um, you know, uh, what is, what is the, what is it? Star? What oh, Charity it? Navigator, five-star rating. Yeah. We, we, I mean, you know, <laughs> so you can trust that Anything that you're donating that you're giving to us is going right back to the communities that we serve because that's our mission and we're very mission centered. And that's also very important to the people who are giving. Exactly. Exactly. Especially in this day and age, people want to know where the dollars are going, you know? Right. right. Yeah. And we are, we are really committed to being um, uh, very transparent and honest, accountable stewards of every single dollar. I mean, I, I was, um, uh, it was called to my attention yesterday that we got a check in the mail from a woman in New Jersey who every year mails us a check for $3. 
And when you think about that, she's been mailing that check for $3 for 40 years. Mm. I mean, that's a significant piece of her income. That's her annual tradition. And we are beyond grateful for those $3 every single year. And um, so, you know, $3 to $3,000, we'll take it. And we will do really good things with it. And we will continue to um, continue to grow this, this struggle and this movement to fundamentally end hunger at its root causes. Okay. So people can donate, obviously, on uh, Tuesday, 1-800-5-HUNGRY. Um, basically, I guess they can donate at any point. With yeah. Hunger, yep. Hungerthon.org. <laughs> Uh, you know, listen, right now they can donate, uh, literally. Uh, exactly. What What does it mean having the kind of support, too, in terms of, um, you know, Yoko Ono is, is, is mentioned every year, Allison, uh, as, as being supportive. Uh, Billy Joel, I mean, having those kind of names of people who uh, lend their name, lend their credibility, lend items, uh, to be part of what is used to help to raise money for Why Hunger. What does that mean to the organization? Well, you know, it, it's a it's a part of our DNA. I think mm-hmm. working with musical artists that the organization was co-founded by Harry Chapin, who died tragically in the early 80s. And, and, um, and he was really responsible for, for bringing musical artists into this work and and then Bruce Springsteen, once um, Harry passed, took on that mantle and said, you know, I'm going to be the, 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 the first person who joins this Artists Against Hunger and Poverty program, which has been um, a, a piece of, of why hunger now for um, almost as long as we've been doing this Hungerthon tradition. Um, and so it, it certainly means a lot because anytime you attach a... a um, and a celebrity name um, it, to a cause, it, it certainly um, translates into more visibility and hopefully more funding. Um, and because of the kinds of musical artists that, um, that, that, that join with Why Hunger, um, these are folks that are, um, that themselves have had some life experience, for instance, Yoko Ono, uh, Lennon talks about her time as a child in, in Japan, um, really experiencing food insecurity herself. Um, you know, you've got Bruce Springsteen from Jersey, you've got Billy Joel from, from the area as well, all of whom um, have demonstrated year after year after year that they are, um, that, they, that they're committed to these causes in their, in their hearts and in their soul. And that I think that in and of itself is what really makes all kinds of artists that most people don't know, they're not household names, but they show up and they may do a concert in their garage. They may do something online. They may do a, what, what's everybody doing these days? Facebook live concert and raising $500 here and you know $1,200 there for why hunger. And, um, and I think it's, it's, it's beautiful because Art has always been at the center of successful social movements, right? You, you, you don't, you never just take to the streets and, and without a banner, without, um, without a band, without a music. And um, Harry Chapin, that's a part of who he was, was to really lift up these is- issues through song and through art. 
So that is a critical aspect, I think, of, um, of who we are. Social media, obviously, is very key. How does the impact of social media help get the message out or messages out of why hunger? Well, clearly we, um, just like every other cause out there, we, we um, do our best to, uh, uh, to use social, the various social media platforms. So we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, um, and the, the, but we don't just use it for fundraising. In fact, most of the time it's not for fundraising. Most of the time we use these platforms to really get the message out. Um, we understand that it is not just the dollars that are going to make a difference in, in this issue and our cause and the thing that we are devoting our lives to. Um, and, um, you know, that, that, that we, we want people to become educated. We want them to understand and really be interested in interrogating why there is still persistent hunger in this country and, and what they can do about it in a whole variety of different ways. Um, and we'll take your money so that we can, we can, you know, we can do the work. So I want to be clear about that. <laughs> we want, we want to see you donate. And um, the majority of our, our, of our messaging is not about donating. It's really about understanding that hunger is a symptom and that there are, and, and, and of problems that are deeply rooted and that we are, are um, we need you in that fight. We need you in that fight. Yeah, and I will say that social media also makes the work more tangible because people can see see what you're doing. They can see who you're serving, you know, as they're becoming more informed. Um, it, social media play it, in these days and times, you know, it's it, it's a, almost a form of accountability in terms of the work that you do because it's so visible now. So it gives people a chance to really connect, especially when you're locked in like we are now. It's good to be able to see what people are doing in the world right now to, um, to, to, to correct these issues, to fix these problems. So yeah, it's, uh, it's a very valuable tool that I don't engage in. I'll be honest, I don't do. This is the most that I do is Zoom. Facebook, all those I don't do, but you know, I know that it's a good way to be in touch with organizations that are out there uh, on the ground. That and the fact, um, Pearl and Allison, that we have generations that not just coming along, they're here now. This is reality for them in terms of communication, right? In terms of accountability. That's right. That's right. So if any of you out there are regular Twitter users, um, you know, hashtag hungerthon, hashtag why hunger, hashtag rights, not charity, hashtag end hunger now, <laughs> all of those hashtags are um, an important way that you can contribute to helping us raise awareness. Hashtag rights, not charity is something new that we're hearing from you this year. Why? I, the, the, what we would like to underscore again is that um, hunger is a symptom of, um, is a symptom of poverty, right? And that poverty 
um, is something that is socially constructed, right? It is constructed by society. The idea that um, poverty is inevitable or that there will always be poverty among us is something that we fundamentally reject. And what we have found, particularly in the US and other wealthy but unequal countries like ours, um, charity has become the moral safety valve that folks use in order to, um, in order to feel like they've, they've made a contribution, they've made a difference, they've, they've demonstrated that they care about the issue of hunger. That is true. That is true. And we need people to care in that way. And we need them to go a little bit deeper and right. think about why charity is so persistent. Why is it that we have um, more than 60,000 food pantries and food banks throughout this country? And what is wrong with a society where people who are working, and we know that more than 50% of people who use food banks have a full-time job. Why is it that they are, that they must resort to food banks and food pantries to get enough food on their table? And so um, one of the ways in which we wanna reframe this issue is as, and this goes back to what Pearl was saying earlier, that food is primarily understood as a commodity in our society. And we believe it should be understood as a basic human right. And that's a different framing. And that helps us to understand that pushing for rights over instead of charity is essentially at the, at the heart of the struggle. That wraps up our first hour of our program. This is Bob Solter. Yes, I said first hour. We're on until 7.30 this morning. Rick Wolf will be along with the Sports Edge at that time here on The Fan. Well, here we are in the seven o'clock hour of our program. I've been able to say that for a while. Huh? This is Bob Soldier. Rick Wolf is along with the Sports Edge at 7.30 this morning. That's for this week only. And um, he'll be by lots of uh, fun things always on the Sports Edge program. We're in our home stretch of our program today talking about the work of Why Hunger and about Hungerthon. Big day for Hungerthon is this Tuesday. Allison Cohen, who is Senior Director of Programs for Why Hunger, and Chef Pearl Thompson, who is a Why Hunger board member, have talked with us on our program since we started at six this morning. Pearl and Allison, are you optimistic when you think of the future and think about even the possibility of getting a better handle on issues like poverty and hunger? Ooh, that's a tough <laughs> question. Uh, I'm trying to be, you know, when I, when I, when I talk to the folks at Why Hunger, when I see Allison's bright face and her enthusiasm, when, um, when I read the, um, the newsletters, when I read about the work that's happening, when I see the the reoccurrence of um, these grassroots folks out there marching day in and day out, I, there is there is some optimism about being able to change the consciousness of of the folks in this country and, and in the world, you know, I, that, because to do, to have other only means that we stay stuck in this mode 
I, it's almost, you know, and I'm an optimistic person and there's times when I struggle with it. Um, but like I said, organizations like Why Hope, Why Hunger give me hope. Um, and I want to partner with them to see that change happen. I think that, you know, uh, there's this big push for narrative change. I think if we keep sending the right message out, I will be even more optimistic. Allison. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, Bob, I believe in us. I do. I believe in us. I believe in us as a people, as a society. I believe that fundamentally um, we, we can recognize each other's humanity and, um, and we don't do it all the time and we don't do it well enough and we don't do it on a large enough scale, but I know that it's possible. I've seen it. I've seen it in, I've seen it in um, in the the peasants in in Brazil that are are struggling and fighting for for their land rights. I, I see it in um, in, uh, in in communities um, uh, in the the Oneida community in upstate New York and bringing back um, seeds and sharing seeds with each other and 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 really uh, committing to a to bringing back their cultural traditions around food. Um, I see it with small urban farmers like Karen Washington, who has uh, basically um, spent her life trying to help people learn how to grow food so that they can have their own, so they can determine their own, um, their own uh, uh, food sources, where their, where their food comes from and what their food system looks like in their community. So, um, I, I have to um, I have to believe that that is a future that we can that we can attain and um, and uh, yeah so I'm I'm going to err on the side of optimism and on the side of hope and I think um, I think that hope is when we stand together whenever we stand together even if we don't agree if we stand together that that for me is hope. And I, I think that that's what Why Hunger tries to do uh, throughout the world is simply hold space for people to stand together and imagine a different future, imagine a different world and, and innovate, find the solutions that work for their particular communities. Tuesday, November 24th is um, the big day for us uh, when we will be um, taking over the airwaves of uh, on Intercom and uh, Intercom New York and uh, raising funds and awareness to invest in the true solutions to ending hunger. Um, and, uh, and we hope you'll join us. We hope that you will uh, be inspired to donate. We hope that you will be inspired to have this conversation with your family around the Thanksgiving dinner table and, and, and really uh, talk about how you can invest in the real solutions to ending hunger. So hungerthon.org, we encourage you to check it out. On Tuesday, we encourage you to call 1-800-5-HUNGRY and talk to a real live person and, um, and make a donation or, or just make an inquiry. There are all kinds of auctions online at hungerthon.org. There are gifts that you can buy um, from the, 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 the um, contributions that Billy Joel, Yoko Ono, Lennon have made to us to allow us to offer gifts with um, 
with uh, John Lennon's image and, and signature and, and um, a wonderful t-shirt that says uh, New York State of Mind with Billy Joel's signature. So there are lots of, lots of fun things that you can actually purchase for gifts and, um, and you can make a straight donation. You can inquire about volunteering. There are a variety of different ways that you can get involved. And most importantly, um, commit to learning, commit to learning about the root causes of hunger. There still are volunteer opportunities even in the age of COVID. Yep, um, we have a hunger hotline. We're looking for folks to help us um, really ensure that all of the different, um, to, to, to make sure our database is accurate and, and complete. So we can use your help even if you are um, home, which many of us are these days. And if you have access to a cell phone, a computer, we could use your help. Um, so please uh, check us out, find food, whyhunger.org slash find food. And there's an opportunity there to, to join our, our, um, our bank of volunteers. Um, and we can also use your support throughout Hungerthon as well uh, uh, as a volunteer. So please give us a call, check us out. Um, we we want to get you involved. I want to thank both of you very much for uh, joining me in uh, this portion of our discussion, wonderful chat. Uh, Chef Pearl Thompson, who is Why Hunger board member, Allison Cohen, who is Senior Director of Programs for Why Hunger. Let's hope for a very, very successful time on uh, Tuesday. Um, believe me, this year, we all could use it in terms of success <laughs> too, it's something positive. Uh, whyhunger.org, 1-800-5-HUNGRY, the number to call on uh, Tuesday as well. And Allison, we are joined by a gentleman who you certainly know and who is going to provide an interesting perspective for us because in a way, we're going to be talking about two things that strike a chord with uh, our listeners. Would you do the honors of introducing our guest? Oh, it would be my pleasure. Um, uh, our guest today is Rob Robinson. And um Rob is and has been, um, as he, he likes to use the word, comrade um, of ours and ally at Why Hunger for a number of years. And, um, and Rob has been organizing both in New York, around the U.S. and around the world, um, uh, looking at the issues of um, the intersection of, of housing, homelessness, access to land and, um, and, and really all of the components that make a home for a person and, um, and really fighting for um, uh, housing as a, as a basic human right, both here in the US and worldwide. And um, so it's our, it's our pleasure to, um, to have Rob here with us today. Rob lives in New York. He is affiliated with an organization called Partners for Rights and Dignity or Dignity and Rights. They just changed their name, Rob, so don't tell me on dignity that. Dignity and Rights. Partners for Dignity and Rights. Partners for Dignity and Rights. And um, yeah, so thank you so much, Rob, for taking the time to be with us. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I guess in a little bit of uh, background for our discussion today, you know, I mentioned the fact we're going to talk about two things that strike a chord with people who are listening to this discussion. Uh, because you talk in a way about um, the pandemic as a natural uh, point of discussion in this year. But one of the areas where we always get into discussion on this program is in this idea of talking about 
obviously about hunger, but we also talk about homelessness an awful lot. And in a way, I'm going to put this out to either one of you or both of you. I guess they can kind of be viewed as twin pandemics. Yeah, I would say so. And I think um, COVID-19, and this is the, use this word, um, I'm not sure this is a great word to use in connection with COVID-19, but there has been a bit of an opportunity here in that um, we're, we're able to really make visible the idea that hunger exists in the U.S., which, you know, believe it or not, people people still have a, a sense that that's not a real thing. And, um, and we're able to visibilize the connection between hunger and homelessness or what a lot of people refer to as houselessness to make a, a distinction between um, shelter and and um, and the and the sense of, of sense of home that people people have. Um, so you know we're here in New York City, for instance, we're looking at fifty seven thousand um, people that are sleeping in shelters right now, and those are the people that are in shelters. And I'm sure Rob can talk about it in more details in terms of um, you know how much how much larger that is. At the same time, we have doubled. Um, the rates of hunger in New York City. So we're now we're in New York in the larger area. We're looking at um, a doubling of the numbers, close to two million now. Yeah. So I would I would agree with the assessment that Allison laid out. I would just caution us in one instance. For me, when I think about this pandemic and the issues that both Allison and I are working on. I want to be clear to the listeners that they existed long before the pandemic. The pandemic exacerbated these issues. It's not like these things just popped up, right? So I, but I do think um, it, it presented opportunities, as Allison said, for us to hone in on these problems and and maybe organize ourselves to make changes, right? And you know, I think the number of people that we see visible on the streets of New York. Um, are visible for a reason. I, I think these things naturally intersect. And I say that because, you know, rent, our fundamental problem with respect to housing is wages don't rise as fast as rents. So people end up in this precarious position and then they make the decisions of whether I should eat or pay for health care, right? So these are decisions that many people are making in a, in a city like New York, one of the wealthiest cities in the world and then within one of the wealthiest countries in the world. So it's a huge, huge problem that has been exacerbated by COVID-19. And I think it's an important point to make that, you know, this didn't just start in um, you know March or February or anything like that but yes you know and it, it crystallizes um, I think I told this story on the year a couple months back my first trip from Miami New Jersey was physically June 14th uh, flag day and I'll never forget the experience coming off the train at Penn Station and walking into Penn Station proper. And the first thing that struck me is everything's closed. I mean, everything is closed. I mean, mentally, I knew that the subways weren't running, but it's just like nothing is open, no bathrooms, nothing. And then I was looking around and thinking to myself, there are no homeless people around here. No one, absolutely nobody is here. And, you know, we were sort of sent out at that point to the street it was eighth avenue 
and on that morning at that time. And you get outside and there's nobody at the doors of Penn Station. Again, highly unusual. Right. Yeah, you walk a little bit around the block and guess what? Reality strikes. Okay. And again, it's like one of the first things that you think of, or at least I thought of, because I had to walk about eight blocks trying to find a cab, Rob. Now, this is three o'clock in the morning on a Sunday. Okay. I'm walking on 8th Avenue and heading southbound trying to find a cab. And fortunately, I did. Somebody was kind enough to stop and pick me up and me ride down to the station. But walking along, and I'm seeing the numbers of people who were sleeping on the streets. And also people were just walking because there are a whole lot of people who just, they spend the night just in transit, especially now because the subways are closed overnight, which is one of the places where an awful lot of people used to spend their nights. And the thought that struck me over and over again was, first of all, how consuming the media and watching television it's an image that I don't see an awful lot. And secondly, the reality of, oh, yeah, think of what this is like for somebody who doesn't have shelter, who is challenged in this way every single day. And that was kind of a mind-blowing experience then. Bob, I can tell you it is something to think about but i also think our society doesn't exhibit the humanity necessary to understand the issue we've become sort of cold to it we've accepted that this is part of our landscape and people walk past it for me having been formerly homeless the biggest alert for me was back in march when i was center for disease control and our state government started sending messages of shelter in place Right. But what does that mean? I started asking myself a question. When I come to the office where I work in the financial district, which is near the Fulton Street train station, mm-hmm. what does that mean to those four people that I see sleeping on the floor every morning? Is that where they're supposed to shelter? And I, I organize with some comrades across the country, particularly in San Francisco, where there are high numbers of street homeless folks working with the Western Regional Advocacy Project out there. And we started advocating for our local governments and state governments to start investing in moving people into hotels. We said, OK, these hotels are vacant, right? There's money coming from the federal government. You guys have to do something. And so we put a lot of energy into that. Um, I think about it now and wonder what's going to happen post-pandemic right right? folks might be comfortably in a space right now that they can it's a quasi home it's better than the situation was but what happens once the pandemic is over and those hotel owners want their space back so it's something that's constantly churning inside of my mind and how difficult was that or was it difficult even making those kind of arrangements to get accommodation in those hotels that's something i always wondered it was difficult, but, you know, I'm, I'm blessed to have a voice, having the lived experience and having a voice that reaches the highest level of New York City government and also the federal government. I think there was a feeling that 
I could organize people and we could have a voice. So we need to react to these folks who are making a reasonable request when you think about it, because mm -hmm. these hotels are sitting vacant. The rest of these owners want to get some type of income for their spaces. So it didn't seem like that big of an ask, especially when money started coming in from the federal government to support the economic conditions within cities. Well, here's a perfect way. So understanding, collaborating with a group down in DC called the National Law Center on Homelessness and Poverty, who really gives us inside information on how the federal government operates. They let us know there was this pot of money set aside and we just started advocating and pushing our local governments until they figured out how to get that money into their cities and how to you know, get this money through FEMA, which was actually, we would think it would come through housing and urban development, but it came, yeah. through, you know, it came through FEMA. So, right, understanding how that money travels was a big part of that, that, that process in making that happen. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, FEMA also is often uh, when we have some sort of climate related disaster or something else that creates uh, a significant amount of, of uh, need for emergency food, it's FEMA that comes in as well, um, not the USDA necessarily. Um, and I, I, what I, I think that what I'm what I'm thinking about as you all talk about this. Um, and the the increase in the in the visibility of of homelessness, and then the the sense of like, are we just becoming immune to this? Is this just something that we're accepting as a part of our society? And I think that um, the parallel in the um, emergency food world or the food banking world is very very similar. And we've done an, an amazing job with an incredibly sophisticated, highly institutionalized food banking system to, as um, my favorite author, Jan Poppendick always says, often says, help people release that moral safety valve. So they don't have to, they don't have to think, you know, they can, they can give food to a food bank and feel like that is, um, you know, an important contribution. And I'm, I'm not at all, um, wanting to vilify or or point to folks that are volunteering their time and their energy and their money and their food to the food banking institutions, but just to point out that we've normalized it to such an extent right. in our society that I, 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 I challenge you to find someone who at the, at the, doesn't remember that, it, that when they first walked into kindergarten, that um, sometime during that first year, they were taught um, how to be charitable by bringing in cans of food mm -hmm. to the school that would then go to a local food bank. So again, it's a both and, um, but the danger is when we start to institutionalize the charitable responses to these problems, as opposed to the thinking, and Robbie said this really clearly, it is ultimately, um, uh, it's ultimately an economic issue, right? It's ultimately about economic justice. We don't pay a living wage. Uh, we know that more than 50% of um, folks that go to food banks in this country have a job and their job just does not pay enough, does not offer benefits, does not allow them to feed themselves and their families. And so therefore they have to use food banks. There's another incredible statistic, Allison, that, you know, you guys be more invested in food. But I remember talking to you guys when I first heard it, that 40% of the food produced in the U.S. goes into a landfill. 
And when I first heard that, I was pulling out my hair. I'm like, and there were people hungry? Makes no sense, right? It just, it makes absolutely no sense. So, and then I think the other problem is, and this is related to what you just said, Allison, is narratives, right? So, you know, putting the blame on people. I felt that through homelessness. I feel that through hunger. And it turns out if you don't pay a living wage, people have to make decisions. And sometimes they aren't the best decisions. And those decisions can be, well, I'll take a shot and not eat today what in the wealthiest country in the world people are making decisions like that it's head scratching it really yeah. is that's going to do it for our program this morning this is bob Salter. thanks so much for joining us we see you at six next sunday morning We're going to make way for rick wolf and the sports edge program that's along at 7 30 here on the fan this episode is brought to you by progressive insurance whether you love true crime or comedy celebrity interviews or news you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue and guess what now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively sports. That clock at four. Doncic. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening.